So I'll never forget my coach. This would have been the, the fall of 2000. It was senior night at my high school. And my coach in front of my peers and my parents said these words. I'll never forget them. Joe, you were born a leader. Now, I don't say that to puff myself up because I've doubted those words most of my life. But I remember those words. Why do I remember those words? Why were they so vivid? Why can I not unhear them? Part of the reason is because I'm American. Follow me. I'm American. And in America, to be called a leader is the highest possible praise. Isn't it? We have leadership awards. We have leadership training. We see leadership potential, which is great because leadership is vital. Leadership is important. There's always a vacuum of leaders, and so we want good leaders. But I see an ugly flip side of this. We so value leadership that we tend to denigrate followership. Think about that. Followership. I mean, when was the last time we offered a followership award (laughs) or a followership training class or said to somebody, you have a lot of potential to be a great follower. Do you know that? We don't say that because we tend not to value it. I mean, let's be honest. We hate following, don't we? So uh, philosophers, they say that we are living in an age of expressive individualism. What that means is that we live in an age which says we are more fully human. We are most alive when we are expressing our individuality. And if that is our age, it makes sense that following would be a cardinal sin. Think about it. To follow means to bury your potential, so we think. To follow means that we are just mindless. To follow would, would mean that we are simply uh, shutting all these doors and not expressing who we are. All right, there's a problem with this, and I thought about this. There's a problem with this. We are, it, it seems as if we are born to follow. It seems as if God made us followers. But it's very much in our DNA. So the psychologist Mark Van Vite, he he points out that at birth, just thinking about our birth alone, uh, we follow the expression of our mother's face. We follow it up through her eyes. And then at three months, that's at three months. And then at, at nine months, we follow her gaze to whatever she's looking at. So right away, as soon as we enter this world, we are following. And the Bible, if you study it, if you read it, assumes this fact. That we are born followers. That God made us followers. So the Apostle Paul, he put it this way. He says this. He says, don't you realize. He's writing to a church in Rome. A young church, a small church, a scrappy church. He's writing to them and he's saying, don't you realize that you become a slave to whatever you choose to obey. You can be a slave to sin, he says. Which leads to death. Or you can choose to obey God. Which leads to righteous living. Paul is saying that there is no neutral ground. We are all followers. The question isn't are we following. The question is who are we following. And then does that person we're following bring death or life? That's the, form, that's the, that's the critical question. 
I like how Ernest Hemingway put it. He said, we are all apprentices, all of us. If we are all apprentices, doesn't it make the most sense to pay most attention to our master? Who is our master? Who are we following? Who is shaping us? And is the way that they're shaping us, is our apprenticeship to whatever it is bringing death or life? In our passage this morning that you heard aloud, uh, Jesus makes this point with force. He compares us to sheep. That's what I mean when I say he's making this point with force. I mean, there's so many animals, if you think about it, in the animal kingdom that I would rather be called. Think about it. Lion would be nice. <laughs> or uh, We saw on our vacation in Michigan a bald eagle. I, an eagle. I understand why... We picked eagle in America. We hate following, right? Eagle isn't incredible. We're flying, we're soaring, we're free. Nobody can tell us what to do. We're powerful. We kill others. You know, that's who we are. We're America, right? I understand that one. The lamb, lamb. I mean, think about it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think there's a college that has sheep as their mascot. <laughs> think about that. I would, it may be a Christian college with like enrollment five, you know, 50. But... <laughs> To my understanding, there's no sense of that. Why? Because sheep are followers. Sheep are dependent. Sheep are vulnerable. Shepherds would tell us that if a, if a lamb is within sight of safety and is in danger, that sheep does not know how to get to safety unless that lamb is led there to safety. Even if the lamb sees the safety. So, of course, we wouldn't pick that image. But Jesus does. Jesus does. It's humbling. I think it's countercultural to embrace this identity of followership. But the sooner we admit, I think, our sheep nature, the better. Amen? The sooner we admit our sheep nature, our vulnerability, our dependency, the better. Why? Well, Jesus tells us, he says, as born followers, there's two kinds of leaders that you can follow. The hired hand or the good shepherd. And who you choose to follow makes all the difference. Makes all of the difference. The real shepherd, and I say real because when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd... I don't know what you think of. I don't know what, what, what you think of when you hear the word good. But the sense that he would say it and the sense that the original audience would hear it would be authentic or real. He's using good like we might say, is your money good? Is it real? Is it authentic? And we know that because Jesus is contrasting his shepherding with the hired hands. In fact, the Pharisees were standing in his presence. He was addressing the religious leaders of the day who were spiritually abusing a man. Who was healed by Jesus from blindness to sight, and they essentially excommunicated him for worshiping Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, Look, 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 you are a hired hand, I am a real shepherd. He's making a contrast. And that means he's giving us a choice. Will you follow the real shepherd? The authentic shepherd? The good shepherd? Or will you settle? For hired hands. What makes Jesus' shepherding 
authentic, real. Uh, He says a few things. I'll point out three this morning. As good shepherd, Jesus alone saves. He saves. He's a good shepherd. He's a real shepherd. He's an authentic shepherd. He is the real deal, as as my wife would say. He is the real deal. Why? Well, the big idea in this passage, if you think about it, is actually the sheep are going to die. That's kind of the background background thing that we can kind of miss, but we shouldn't miss. The whole point is that we're vulnerable and that there are wolves. There are wolves at the gate. And so Jesus assumes this and he says, you are going to die unless, unless you are saved or rescued. How does Jesus save? He saves by substitution. That is clear in this passage. In verse 11, take a look at your text. In verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And then he defines why he is authentic, why he is real, why he is uh, the real deal. Why is he the good shepherd? Well, the good shepherd, he says in verse 11, lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, if you take a look, he repeats this. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And in both cases, don't miss this. Jesus says that he lays down his life for the sheep. He doesn't just say, I lay down my life. I'm a good shepherd. I'm willing to die in my job. He actually says something way more. And he goes a lot further. He says, I actually lay down my life for the life of the sheep. That is a substitution statement. He's saying, I die so that my sheep live. Uh, In the Metro Art Museum, uh, there hangs an 18th century painting by Jacques-Louis David. How's that? I didn't take French. He called uh, this painting the death of Socrates. Have you seen this painting? The death of Socrates. It's an 18th century painting. And in it, Socrates, uh, the famous philosopher, is in front of his pupils, his students, his disciples. And his hand is sort of hovering over a cup of poison or hemlock. And if you remember what happened, we know that Socrates was convicted of corrupting the youth with his ideas. And he saw his death sentence as a teaching opportunity. And so in this painting, you see him looking at his disciples with his hand hovering over the poison. And it's as if Socrates is saying, my death right now will be a teaching moment to you all. Face death. Encounter it. Be courageous. Be firm. That is not what Jesus is doing here. That is not... Contrast Socrates' death uh, with with a different death. Compare it to the death of a a, a 22-year-old man, Victor Moskoda. I just heard this recently. This is a 22-year-old man who saw a 5-year-old Vincent Gonzalez fall into a river at Sequoia National Park. And this 22-year-old man, Vincent, can't swim. But what does he do? He jumps into the river. And the whole time, this five-year-old boy, Vincent, held on to Victor's neck. Victor pushed him. 
to his parents' hands. And at the same time, pushed himself into the river. He pushed Vincent to life as he himself pushed himself to death. Do you see the difference? A Socratic death is, watch me die. You might learn something about how to be, how to be brave. A substitutionary death says, I die so that you live. It's a rescue death. And that's what Jesus says is, is characteristic, which is at the heart of who Jesus is. He's the true shepherd because he dies for his sheep to save them, to rescue them. He sees a wolf and he lets the wolf maul him instead of his sheep. So he saves us through substitution. He hints that resurrection in this passage as well. So we know he saves us with more than just his death. He saves us with his being raised again. And we see that in verse 18. Take a look. He says, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. That's the end of verse 17. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, talking about his life, and have authority to take it up again. In other words, the death and the resurrection of Jesus are no mere accidents of history. Jesus is saying, I have the authority to lay my life down in the way that I did at the cross. And I also have the authority to raise it up again, as he did in his resurrection. And so he saves us, not just with his substitutionary death, he dies for us on the cross, but he also saves us because of his resurrection. Paul would say we are, we are made right with God by his resurrection. He also says that if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then our faith is futile, it's pointless. He saves us with his resurrection. He is the good shepherd. He is the only shepherd who can bring us not just forgiveness, but life, resurrection life. And then think about this. I love this detail in this. In verse 16, Jesus talks about how he saves. He says, I have other sheep that are not in this fold. Right in front of me, he's saying. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus here is saying that I am not just a shepherd that stands back and calls on people. I am a, I am a seeking shepherd. I am on mission. I am an evangelist. I go out, and they will hear my voice. Uh, when we were on vacation this past week, on the 4th of July, there was a lemonade stand, and there was a family helping out their kids, and they were just sitting there, and it was in an obscure corner. I can't believe I even drove by them, and yes, I did drive by them, and I felt bad, because there's no way anybody would see this, health, this, this, this stand. And I'm, and I'm thinking, that is exactly not how Jesus pursues us. He doesn't just say, hey, I have good stuff. I have salvation. I have life to the fullest. I bring eternal life. Come to me in that sense. No, in this passage, he He's saying, I am actually pursuing you. I am going out to you. And isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? It's humbling. Those of us who have maybe come to Christ and are sitting here and want to worship Him and want to learn from Him and want to be apprenticed to Him, that's humbling because it tells us, as we confessed earlier in our worship service, that even our faith is a gift. That's humbling. But isn't it assuring on the other side of that humility? It's assuring that your faith itself is in God's rescue. It's part of his salvation. He is holding you 
harder and more firmly than you are ever going to be able to hold him. And isn't that good news when you think about your friends or your family or your colleagues at work who do not know Jesus, that you are praying that they know Jesus? Isn't that good news that Jesus is a pursuer? That He is seeking out sheep who will hear His voice? He doesn't say maybe they'll hear His voice. He'll say, no, my sheep will hear my voice. And so He goes out. And that can give us confidence and boldness as we go out in His name. All right, so, so he saves. He's the good shepherd because he saves. There are hired hands that cannot save. That's Jesus' biggest point here. The hired hands do not save. Jesus is the only shepherd who becomes a lamb. The hired hands, we're going to look at this next. The hired hands flee in the face of the wolf. Only Jesus becomes a slaughtered lamb so that you would never be. He saves. He also cares. So he saves, he cares for his sheep. Jesus alone is the authentic shepherd because he truly cares and is committed to us. He compares himself to hired hands in verses 12 through 13. And as you take a look, he says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Why do they flee? Jesus tells us. A hired hand flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Hired hands are only in on it for themselves. The sheep are a means to an end for them. And contrast that with Jesus. Jesus, the authentic shepherd, not a hired hand, cares. When he says, I am the good shepherd, do you realize what he's saying? In the minds and in the imaginations of the people in that age, they would have known Psalm 23 uh, by heart just as we do, many of us. Where the where we were here that the Lord is our shepherd. And Jesus says, I am that shepherd. I am the Lord before you in the flesh. Truly God and truly man. And everybody knows the Lord as shepherd is so committed to his flock in that in that psalm that by verse six they can say, Surely goodness and what? Do you remember? Mercy. Mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And that word follow or pursue is usually connected to a wolf who is following or an enemy who is following and pursuing you as a way of danger. And then the Psalm 23 flips that on his head and says, no, the good shepherd, the real shepherd, the Lord who is shepherd, he follows us, he pursues us with not his mercy, with not his danger, but his mercy. The Hebrew word is a rich word. It's called hesed. And it means loving kindness. It means commitment. It means dogged commitment. It means there is nothing you can do to change his course if he is set on you. Nothing. It's a care that will never go away. If the Lord is your shepherd, He is committed to you. Can I say that again? So you believe it? If the Lord is your shepherd, He is committed to you. As a child, every time I left my house, my parents had this habit of saying, I love you. 
and it was kind of neurotic to be honest like we all just wanted to make sure that that was the last word we said to each other i love you you know so there's something kind of weird about it but on the other hand i loved it it was a great habit let's always end our statements with i love you let's always leave the house by saying i love you but over time the sort of voltage of those words i love you started to to drain Psychologist Robert Holden asks, what if we said to each other, I am committed to you instead of I love you? What difference would that make? It would be powerful. It is powerful. When I say to my wife, I'm I'm on your team. When I say that, I am on your team. There's a charge, an electric charge in those words. I love you. But I'm committed to you. That puts legs, that puts that puts heart, that puts everything on the table. When Jesus says I'm the good shepherd, he's saying, I care about you. I am committed to you. A hired hand is not committed to you. I am committed to you. I read about a trend recently. This is crazy. Where, uh, And I apologize maybe if you've done this. Gosh. But there are people who are getting their companies that they work for tattooed on their arms and on their bodies. Have you heard of this before? Anybody done this? Anybody? Okay, good. I can, I can move forward then. Um, they're doing this to show commitment to their company that they work for. I also think they're doing it so they don't get fired, right? <laughs> because if you show your boss your tattoo of their co- corporation on your, like, that's going to be really awkward when they sit you down and fire you. <laughs> I read a story, though, where a guy's like, no, I fired seven of them, and they all had my tattoos on them. And he's just like, it's like whatever. They weren't, they weren't working well, so I fired them. But listen, their commitment to that company was so much that they wore that, the, 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 very, the very essence of that company on their body. So that even if they got fired, they still had a care and a commitment. And a testimony of that commitment on them. And that is what Jesus says here. If you have been forgotten, listen carefully. If you have been forgotten, if you've been made uh, vulnerable by somebody who was supposed to lead you and didn't, if you have been left vulnerable by someone you trusted, if you have commitment issues, as we all do because of this, then I want you to look to Jesus, the good shepherd right now. I want you to see his commitment. And I want his commitment to lead you directly to the cross where Jesus' commitment and care was shown to its fullest level. Where he takes on the curse that we all deserve in our place. He's the good shepherd. Because he cares. He's committed to you. And his commitment is costly. It's not cheap like the hired hands. One last thing here as we... Wrap up this passage. He alone knows you. So he alone can save you. He alone cares for you. Jesus, as a good shepherd, as a true authentic shepherd, alone knows you. And this knowledge is both intimate and mutual. Let's first look at how it's mutual. If you look at verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father. 
and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so we know, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that we know Jesus so well that we can pick out his voice. There's an intimate knowledge there. That's not head knowledge. In fact, research shows that infants recognize their mother's voices from the womb. Did you know this? There's this interesting study where they had moms who were um, um, close to, to giving birth reciting a poem, recording it. 60 moms. 30 of these moms, or 30 of the babies inside these moms heard their mom's voice reciting the poem. And 30 different moms. And the 30 that heard their own moms, their heart rates slowed down. And the 30 that didn't hear their mom's voice, their heart rate accelerated. Which tells you that they all heard a voice, so they all can hear voices. Because the heart rate changed. But there was a rest and a recognition when the infant heard their own mother's voice. That's the intimacy we have with Jesus. We can spot it. We can hear the false shepherds. We know his voice. We have a deep personal knowledge of him. And it's mutual. We know him and he knows us. But it's also deep because knowledge in the Bible, as you maybe know, was never merely intellectual. That's sort of something that I think we've brought into the Bible with our enlightenment thinking. That that knowledge merely means I know facts. Because in the Bible, knowledge is a very experiential knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that uh, a married couple shares with each other. Bodily, emotionally, spiritually. And Jesus is saying that this kind of intimacy that we have with Him is the knowledge that He shares with His Father. Think about that. So I know my dad. I've known him for 36 years. (laughs) Okay? And if you listen to the study about babies hearing their voices, I probably knew him for 37 years. I know him better than you. I can spot out his voice in a crowd. And he has known me for those 36 years. He knows everything about me. He probably knows me better than I know myself. Did you know, consider this, Jesus has known his Father for all of eternity? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Intimate knowledge. Three in one. For all of eternity past, all of eternity future. And Jesus is saying, let this strike you, that the kind of knowledge that he has, the intimacy with his Father, is the same knowledge that you have with him. Only Jesus knows you. We don't just have forgiveness of sins, though that's great. We have intimate knowledge of God. I love how Michael Reeves puts it. He says, clearly the salvation of God is better even than forgiveness. And certainly more secure. Other quote-unquote gods, lowercase g, might offer forgiveness. But this God welcomes and embraces us as his children, never to send us away. There's an intimacy that we have with the good shepherd. The hired hands can't give us. Hired hands, they don't know you. They don't care for you. They can't save you. And they won't save you when you fail them. So think about this. Who are your hired hands? 
These are people or things or, or ideas that you trust in, that you follow, whether you like to admit it or not, because you think they will lead you to paths of life. These can be really good things. These can be a vision that you have about your family. These can be a vision you have about your career. This can be health. This can be all kinds of things. This can be an actual religion. This can be other people. It can be someone like Socrates or Buddha. Jesus is making a divisive claim here. He is saying, I alone am authentic. And I alone will give you eternal life. These other things will only let you down. So where do you stand? I mean, look at verses 19 through 20. There was a division among the Jews because of these words, it says. What Jesus said caused a division. There were some who embraced Jesus as a good shepherd, and there were others who rejected Jesus as a good shepherd. And I give that challenge to you even this morning. Who will you follow? The hired hands? They don't know you. If you're chasing money, money doesn't know you. If you're chasing a body image, body image doesn't know you. Your friends that you're trying to impress, they don't really know you. And think about it. If you fail with these other hired hands, what will they do? They will punish you. There's nothing more shameful than following after a careerism and then failing in your career. Nothing. But when you fail Jesus, what's he say? He says, I know. That's why I died for you. He's better. Follow him. Follow him.